welcome to Infectious Diseases Hub. Today, I'm at Imperial College London, ahead of the first in an exciting new bi-monthly seminar series from the Centre for International Child Health. The title of today's seminar and the discussion topic for our podcast is Tuberculosis, Why Are We Not Winning the Fight? I'm joined by James Seddon, Liz Whitaker, and Pete Dodd, all of whom are speaking on their research into key aspects of paediatric tuberculosis as part of today's seminar. In addition, we're joined by Professor Beati Katman, the Director of the Centre for International Child Health here at Imperial College, and the person responsible for today's event. Thank you all for joining me today. Hi, um, my name's Liz Whitaker. I'm a clinical lecturer here at Imperial College and a consultant in paediatric infectious diseases at St Mary's. Um, and I do my research looking at age-related responses to pathogens. I focused on mycobacteria for my PhD um, and found that children under one had a different immune response to older children, which is probably what makes them so susceptible to TB. And now what I'm focusing on is actually the younger children, probably the under ones, and how their immune responses mature with age, because that probably has implications for vaccine research as well as TB susceptibility. My name is James Seddon. I'm also, um, likely as a clinical lecturer in, um, in the Department of Paediatrics and also a, a consultant in paediatric infectious diseases at the hospital at St Mary's. Um, my research really focuses on trying to better understand the transition from children who get exposed to tuberculosis to why some become infected and then of those why some get disease and also understanding what interventions we can do to try and prevent those transitions, whether they be social, economic interventions or drug therapy. Uh, I'm particularly interested in drug-resistant TB and that's what so I spend most of my uh, time looking at. So, uh, my name is Pete Dodd, and I'm a mathematical modeler and epidemiologist based at the University of Sheffield. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in using models to try and interpret epidemiological data and estimate burden, especially for paediatric TB. Uh, and I'm also interested in using models to evaluate the impact of interventions. My name is Beate Kampmann. I'm Professor of Pediatric Infection and Immunity here at Imperial College and uh, I've been working in childhood tuberculosis for the last 15 years, I think. Um, there, my interest has really been sparked through the observation that childhood TB is a very neglected area of international tuberculosis recognition and also research. And our research has tried to well, raise the profile of childhood TB, but also plug some of the gaps in our understanding where childhood TB differs from what we see in adults, and uh, that translates both to the epidemiological as well as the basic science context, and we've developed some methods to understand transmission of tuberculosis in households uh, to children, and also, much like Liz, to understand how the immune response in the child might particularly predispose young children to getting TB. Thank you. Um, Pete, maybe you could shed some light on why you think the burden of tuberculosis in children is such an area of unmet need. Well, it was only in uh, 2012, I think, that the WHO first estimated the uh, burden of paediatric uh, TB. And part of that is because actually the, the notification data, the number of cases that have been diagnosed and then reported and then aggregated up by countries to send to WHO, uh, has, has been going up and up. So previous, over the past 10 years, is actually that's starting from a very low base where very few cases were being notified centrally uh, through to better numbers today. So part of that reflects uh, a historical sense that maybe uh, paediatric TB is not a public health problem because children aren't normally infectious to other people. Um, but it also represents uh, genuine challenges in uh, diagnosing TB uh, in children. TB in children uh, 
can be uh, difficult to differentiate from other conditions. And the diagnostic um, tests and algorithms available tend to have quite poor sensitivity in children. Thank you. Um, James, what are the key considerations for identifying and treating tuberculosis, specifically with the rise of drug resistance? I think, um, I think one of the big concerns for children is that not only are children at very high risk of going from um, to having TB infection to, to going on to get TB disease, but also they're at high risk of getting the most severe unpleasant forms of TB, such as disseminated tuberculosis and, and TB meningitis. So they really are some of the most vulnerable um, patients that, that are out there. The other thing is that children with TB are in places where they're very poorly, um, poorly resourced in terms of health facilities and, and trained medical personnel. So not only are, are children a very vulnerable population, but pe children with TB are in uh, very uh, neglected populations. Um, so that makes them a, a really crucial group to, to understand. The other thing is, as Pete alluded to, is that um, the diagnosis of TB in children is quite hard to confirm. Children don't produce many bugs, uh, and so it's d difficult to get specimens off them, and so we sometimes struggle to make a definite diagnosis. Um, so we need to, to learn how to make a diagnosed based on other um, other tools, whether they be new biomarker tests, whether they be clinical diagnosis or radiology. Um, it's particularly important to, in terms of drug resistance because children can be um, infected with drug-resistant organisms the same as adults can. Uh, and if a child is living in the house with an adult who's got drug-resistant TB and then they get sick, they're very likely to have drug-resistant TB themselves. And globally, there are many programs that really won't treat anyone for drug-resistant TB until it's absolutely absolutely confirmed and if this is the case um, then we're going to be missing a lot of children because a lot of the children won't be confirmed, they won't be found to have drug resistant TB and then they'll miss out on the appropriate treatment. So I think we really need to be thinking very carefully about how we uh, diagnose TB in children and, and especially about drug resistant TB. Great, thank you. Um, Beati, do you think outreach is an important part of research and what do you hope events such as this seminar today will bring to the field? And when you talk about outreach, that actually probably has to be a little bit further defined because even outreach to our colleagues is important because there are many children who will be maybe pitching up at uh, health clinics in the community and that's true for high-income and low-income settings where people don't even think about that tuberculosis might be part of the diagnosis so, uh, or the diagnostic spectrum. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that the people who are also healthcare professionals are alerted to this condition and uh, then, of course, we need to liaise with the community itself where we find the patients and in paediatric TB particularly their parents and families and network that also includes schools and it's really a question of uh, destigmatizing tuberculosis to some degree through outreach as well because many families especially in, in low income settings are still burdened by the fact that tuberculosis is seen as a, as a stigmatizing disease in the community so the health seeking behavior to some degree will depend on how much we open up the knowledge around tuberculosis and the fact that it's actually a very treatable condition. The seminar today is an opportunity, first of all, it's World TB Day on the 24th of March, which is always a great opportunity to highlight this issue. And in fact, a few years ago, we had a World TB Day, which was dedicated to childhood tuberculosis. And we we're really very pleased about that because all of us worked towards this goal and to bring it up to the agenda of, of public health. A seminar like today is 
primarily for people who work within our environment but also for invited guests as much as we've done our advertising properly and the, what the seminar series overall wants to achieve that people who don't necessarily work in the same area for example you know Pete might have been doing modeling on on many other uh, issues and, and uh, diseases rather than just childhood TB to bring them into the field and show that there are avenues for you know epidemiologists for modelers for social scientists for basic scientists for really a whole host of multidisciplinary research to really tackle a problem which isn't just related to one little key bacterium it is of course the cause but we have such bigger agenda trying to rest tuberculosis which relates to all these areas that I've just briefly indicated. Thank you, it's great. Um, James and Liz, you're both academic clinical lecturers. Um, <coughs> dividing your time between research and the clinic, what do you think the clinical perspective brings to your research? Um, thanks. I think that um, uh, it's really... It's, I don't think it's essential, but I really think it adds a flavour to your research because you can identify clearly things that you see on your day-to-day -day basis that need to be improved. So you can, I mean, for example, for me, when I was a junior doctor, I saw a patient who basically led me to come down this pathway, a little four-month-old who came into hospital um, and ended up with uh, cerebral palsy because he had such severe TB meningitis. And it really inspired me to ask the question, why is this child who was perfectly well three weeks ago now suddenly going has such a different life because of the disease which potentially could be preventable and what makes him different to older children and adults and so that question for me in the very first place is something that led me to go on and do my, my research and I think that in the clinic you'll see a patient and you'll think god it would be really great if we had a drug that was easier for them to take a formulation that was better can we find um, a type of medicine that tastes better for this young toddler so that they're able to comply with their medicine or if there was a better diagnostic tool so that I was able to get a quicker answer all these questions really help to focus on what are the really important research questions and that's in our setting and I think it's, it's great as global health uh, clinicians that we've also had the opportunity to work overseas and see the differences between a low resource and a high resource setting to know that the questions are different but equally important um, and I think it's really um, made my, make me feel as well that the research that I do is really valuable which helps me mm -hmm. to focus when I'm really tired at 9 o'clock at night trying to finish something off. <laughs> Do you have anything to add? No, I think what Liz has said is absolutely, um, I completely agree with. I think that by working clinically, you, you're confronted by the problems that really matter to people, and, and those keeps you very grounded on, on, on keeping your research very focused on what, what is the need. I think conversely, I think that the research helps you be a good doctor, so I think the two are, are very beneficial. I think that the academic world improves your ability to be a doctor, and being a doctor improves your ability to be a researcher. Interesting. Uh, BRT, building on that, your research involves linking discoveries from the lab to the front line of care. Um, what are the key steps needed to sort of translate your findings and why do you think that's so important? So I think sometimes people talk about research from uh, bench to bedside and a lot of the research we do as clinician scientists actually goes from the bedsides to the bench because as Liz and, and James already said we see a clinical problem and often we have to ask patients or you know healthy volunteers for their contribution because we have a certain idea about what might be special in their group of diseases but unless we have samples from them for example we can't really explore that idea 
idea unless we're really basic science researchers and we do it all in mouse models. So in the translational field, a lot of the research is driven through patient samples and samples from human volunteers, and we're really grateful to those volunteers. So those samples then enable us to look, for example, I, I picked the example of TB diagnostics here because uh, we know from our understanding of immunology that probably the immune response to tuberculosis bacteria in children is different from adults. So in order to prove that concept, uh, and then from then on we would think, okay, maybe the diagnostics that we need in children are a bit different from what we need in adults because children don't give us those nice sputum samples that we can find the bacteria in. So if then we want to go for host responses, which is where we think the diagnostic answer might come from, we need samples from, from the children themselves, and we can then subject these samples to analytical processes that involve basic research, such as basic immunology and uh, work that, that Liz has been doing, or transcriptome analysis, this work that uh, James is just getting involved in, or metabolomics, and so that's precisely what we're doing, both here in the UK and in the Gambia, where I also work on childhood tuberculosis. We're taking samples from well-characterized patient populations, and we're trying to put them through cutting-edge technology platforms that let us see if we can come up with what we would call biosignatures for a particular uh, diagnosis. And then we take those biosignatures back into other new cohorts and we validate that what we found in the lab really is true for the next generation of patients that we want to look at. And to me, that is really the translational step. And then the next translational step is to put a lab test that might be quite complicated and needs a lot of experience to even analyze the data into a platform where it could be used like a pregnancy test, right? So either it's a question of yes or no, it would be very easy for healthcare workers to come to a conclusion. Now we're way away from getting there with tuberculosis diagnostics, but that's really where we would like to be, because it's only when a test is translatable to the management of patients literally at the point of care that that test will have its maximal impact. Interesting. Um, Pete, in addition to your interest in paediatric TB, you conduct work on TB in high HIV prevalence settings. Does co-infection present additional challenges? Well, uh, as you probably know, uh, many of the countries with the, the highest per capita rates of TB are countries where HIV is one of the big drivers behind TB incidence. And the reason for that is that HIV infection gradually erodes your uh, immune system's ability to contain uh, TB disease, um, which means that people who wouldn't have contracted TB go on to do so at much higher rates. So obviously in settings like that, uh, wider use of treatment for uh, HIV to uh, reconstitute people's immune systems and their ability to contain TB is really important. Um, and there are differences in terms of the types of disease that people get uh, uh, and um, the ability of certain diagnostics to uh, pick them up. From the point of view of modelling, uh, it's, it definitely produces challenges because it means you've got at least two diseases that you have to worry about. You need to understand the epidemiology of HIV and also the epidemiology of uh, TB. And worse than that, HIV isn't really one thing from the point of view of its implication for TB risk because uh, as uh, disease progresses, your risk of developing TB ramps up very substantially. And then if you get put onto treatment, then it comes down again. But again, not in a, uh, a simple way, but a way that changes over time. Um, so 
challenges both in terms of uh, how you might try to control disease, but also uh, in terms of how you might want to try and model it from uh, the point of view of capturing the epidemiology. Liz, does age play a role in the disease severity of TB, and does it affect prevention or treatment strategies? Um, absolutely, and I obviously based my PhD on this, so it's an area close to my heart. So I think we know that if you're an adult and you are exposed to TB and become infected, you probably have a 10% lifetime risk of developing pulmonary TB disease, which is the disease everyone knows about, consumption, coughing up blood. And of those, about 1% or less will go on to develop what we call severe dissemination disease, where you may get TB in your brain or in your gut or in your bones. But in children, it's really different. So we know that if you're under one and you're exposed to TB and become infected, you have about a 50% chance of getting pulmonary disease or about a 10 to 20% chance of getting disseminated TB meningitis, which obviously has massive implications. So that they're much more susceptible and we know that disease severity is much greater in children. I mean, this actually gives us a great opportunity to study why and why we should do TB research in children because they are the extreme end of the spectrum. It's much easier to identify the cases that are at the extreme end to try and work out, well, what went wrong? What went wrong immunologically? Can we identify what's different about these cases because we want to prevent it and if you will know what the immune problem is you can think about how you might tackle that so I think from a research perspective it's really important that we understand what leads to progression to severe disease and that's why we do the research in children um, in terms of how it impacts on your prevention and treatment strategies it's quite interesting, children are probably the burden or the reservoir for TB um, they all, children, we generally become infected in childhood and we carry it around sleeping within us um, and really only reactivate over time. But actually, because children very rarely pass on TB disease, they're a really neglected group because from a public health perspective, there isn't a great benefit in doing something immediately in terms of treating them and uh, diagnosing them. But actually, if we could prevent them from becoming infected in the first place, then that could be really beneficial. And so prevention strategies include things like contact tracing, which is really other people's area of specialty. And what I'm interested in is vaccines. And ideally, we'd love to develop a TB vaccine that we could give to children, but there are a number of difficulties with this because they don't behave in the same way as adults do. So what we know is that young infants um, have uh, different immune responses to adjuvants, which are the bit of a vaccine that triggers the immune response. And so lots of people have, uh, or not enough, but a few people have studied uh, what we call TLR responses, which are your responses to these adjuvants to see how infants behave, and they behave differently to adults. So designing a vaccine that we can test initially in adults is one thing, but often we need to really take into account that children have different immune responses. Um, and I think from a treatment perspective, there are difficulties because very rarely do drug companies do um, uh, studies of drugs in children. And so if you're going to treat this latent TB infection in children and we need new drugs, and I think James will talk about this from an MDR perspective, those drugs need to be tested in children. We need to know that they come in formulations that work and that they're going to be effective and that they're going to be broken down in the same way because children are not just little adults, they have a whole different way of metabolising things. So absolutely age has an impact on severity and treatment and prevention strategies and it's so important that we do research in these fields if we're ever going to decrease the burden of TB globally. Fantastic. <laughs> James, what do you think are the most promising strategies for tackling drug-resistant TB? Yeah, cheers Martha. Um, uh, very tricky. Um, 
Uh, drug resistant TB um, is is quite challenging to manage in children, and I, I think the one thing we should we should say is TB is such a sort of sociological disease, and it's inextricably linked to poverty. And so the, the sort of glib answer is just to say we need to alleviate poverty, and that would solve all these problems. But um, from a, a sort of a, a TB perspective, and particularly drug resistant TB, we have to have better diagnostics. We have to have better diagnostics in children to diagnose it earlier um, the drug resistant TB. But we need to have better diagnostics in adults if we can diagnose adults early uh, with their drug resistant TB and we can get them on effective treatment then they won't infect children and I think there have, there have been a number of developments, the new molecular tests, the gene expert tests um, that can diagnose TB much quicker and diagnose resistant TB or, or genes associated resistance have been widely um, rolled out and I think that that is in the process of beginning to change how we approach this. So I think the diagnostics for adults and for children is one area. I think we need effective preventive therapy for drug resistant TB. We have good, um, although it's long, but we have good preventive therapy if a child's been exposed to drug-susceptible TB. But it's a bit unclear on what we should be doing with children who've been exposed to drug-resistant TB, and this is an area which we need much more information on. Um, I think we need better treatments for children once we have diagnosed them with drug-resistant TB. Um, we're a long way behind the adults. The adults are doing lots and lots of trials to explore new drugs, new therapies, new combination regimens, and children are systematically excluded from these trials. New, two new drugs, Bodak and Delamidid have recently been um, uh, approved by the WHO and have been registered in the UK, in, in Europe and in the US. And children still, we don't have appropriate formulations, we don't have um, licensing for these use in children. And this is really unacceptable. We're a long way behind and, and we're neglecting children in this capacity. Um, so I think that we need to be doing more um, investigation in children, we need to be doing more studies in children, we need to be including children in research from a very early stage so that we've got the right diagnostics, the right treatment, the right prevention, um, not just for adults but for, for all populations. Great. Um, for the final question, perhaps we could each give our input going round. Um, finally, looking forwards, what do you think are the greatest challenges facing the elimination of TB and how can we overcome these? So, I mean, this is a real challenge, um, but one interesting piece of work that Pete actually did recently, um, looking at the burden of latent tuberculosis, so TB that's sleeping in the body, um, and really, if even if we cut down on transmission going forward, if we, if we treat every single case of active disease right today, so there's no more transition society, it will take hundreds of years for TB to burn itself out, because there's this enormous iceberg of people with TB in their body, and slowly, organisms will surface. So until we really address the problem of treating latent TB in addition to active TB, I don't think we're going to make much uh, of an impact in the epidemic. So to me, James already man mentioned the poverty factor and we can't really go there, but uh, because it's just, that's not something we can do something immediately about it but we do know that uh, the the decline of tuberculosis in northern Europe for example was completely linked to socioeconomic development and that's something that we need to push for even as researchers in medicine and I think we have an advocacy role there. Uh, to me the the ultimate challenge is to design a, a vaccine that's truly preventive and the ultimate problem with that is that we don't know what we need in order to protect properly because the vaccine that we have at the moment is the BCG vaccine which has some 
well, some very good evidence that it protects against disseminated TB and uh, a little bit maybe against TB infection, but it's not effective enough. And the development of the new TB vaccine has really been hampered by the fact that we don't know what we're looking for in terms of protection and correlates of protection. And I think in order to come closer to that goal, we need to, first of all, do our bench-to-bedside, bedside-to-bench research uh, continuously, but also use the opportunity of clinical trials that are testing new TB vaccines to gain as much information as possible why things might work and why they might not work. And I don't think we can really afford to put out new uh, vaccines into the field without taking additional samples. And this is quite a more expensive and, and difficult exercise, but stick things away and then uh, try and understand why, for example, a certain vaccine did not work. If we fall across a or come across a vaccine that happens to work, then fantastic. But given the track record of this field, my expectation there is a little bit limited. And I think we have a few promising candidates out there, but I'd really like uh, whoever is doing these trials to really pay attention to not missing opportunities to build in sample collections to understand why things have and haven't worked. So I, I think uh, what's interesting about this question is that it, it probably divides itself into uh, you know, the kind of more short-term things we can do and the longer-term things we can do. And if you, if you see people uh, present the NTB uh, strategy and the uh, curve that's meant to be the targets going through to 2035, uh, at some point in about 10, 15 years' time, there's a moment where they say, and now we need a, a new tool. And that's, that's definitely the case for thinking about the burden of latent infection. But there's also what, what can we do now? And, and, you know, to me, the fact that there's about a third of people who develop TB who are not, uh, who are thought not to be diagnosed and treated is a major problem. And so there needs to be, you know, investment in health service strengthening, better diagnostics, um, education and sensitisation and in, in communities which have particularly high burdens probably more active approaches to uh, identifying cases in order to get those people uh, treated and to stop them uh, transmitting the disease on to other people. Yeah, I think picking up on what Peter just said, I think that we really need to do what we can do and what we know we can do much better. I think that there's been a tremendous amount of work that's done, identified in loads of advances in a public health perspective, the contact tracing field. We know that contact tracing makes a great difference, but it's done really badly. Having a good TB register, things that should be really quite basic medicine that aren't implemented well, and I think you're right in the what we can do right now package, doing what we have really well would be a good start. Um, I think the TB vaccine um, question, as Beata said, is, is really fascinating. It feels like it's something I've been working on from an immunological perspective in my career in the last nine years and it feels like it's not going as well as it could have done because TB is so clever. It's evolved with us, it knows how to hide and we really need to try and outsmart it and I think that there are a lot of people doing really good work that could work in that line. I think James also mentioned the latent TB question and really rather than just treating all of the places of latent TB, having tools that identify who's at the greatest risk of going on to progress active disease is a really key area and I know some great researchers who are thinking of projects they can do in that area and I think that this is, it needs to be a research priority and children again are an ideal group to look at this because they are the ones who first pick up latent disease and actually are the ones who progress most quickly so they are the group we should be looking at to identify what makes you susceptible to progression because that's going to be the key to eliminating TB. Great, thank you. Unfortunately that's all we have time for. 
Thank you again to Beate, Pete, Liz and James for taking the time to meet with me today and for all your fantastic answers. And thank you to Imperial College London for hosting us. Finally, thank you for listening to this podcast from Infectious Diseases Hub. You can find more exclusive interviews as well as news, journal articles and opinion pieces at www.idhub.com.